The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the second part of my conversation with Edward Bowser about how to invest in times of crisis. And if you do like our conversations here on Mentory TV, make sure to subscribe for free. Hit the bell button so I can always keep you informed. And yes, please share, like. We really, really appreciate it. So I, I don't think we should be surprised that there's some really um, crazy, to use a word, um, trends that have developed just because it's not, it's not a typical market that we've seen over many, many years. It's so driven by the Fed, by um, social media. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Bekali. Price-earning ratios. I looked at them this morning, 23rd of February, 21. Peloton, and I picked out those names that are household names by now. Price-earning ratio, 1,800. Shopify, 880. Zoom, 505. Infineon, 140. At least Infineon has decent, uh, has decent income um, and profits and uh, also, um, well, just, just what, what they give in terms of dividends. All right. These are price earning ratios that are, you know, you could argue, are they mad? Are they not? How do they come about? And how would you as an asset manager react to, hey, the market is going towards technology, remote training, fit tech, blah, de, blah, de, blah. We need to get in there. And then you look at this number and go like, okay, wow, am I too late? What about my timing? Yeah, those are um, interesting questions because it all depends, obviously, on, on the scenario that you have in mind. Um, if you think back to Apple stock back in um, 2003 and four, it, it was essentially a dollar a share, and now, now it's 300 or something. So you have a lot of potential in a growth stock if the earnings come through. Apple was earning maybe um, the equivalent of two cents a share back then. Now they're earning you know, probably $15 a share. It, it really depends on how that plays out. If you think that Peloton can become the next Apple, then it's not that expensive because obviously the earnings can grow, grow into that valuation. I would say there's not going to be that many Apples again because that, that was pretty amazing. But um, I, as a value investor, would not be spending my time on those stocks just because that's not how my approach works. But clearly, um, 
clearly people are very excited about, about Peloton and yep. they love the product. And as you know, subscription-based companies get higher multiples because their revenue is renewable. Yes. Whereas if you're selling a product, you have to sell the same number of products all over again. So, um, so there's a reason why it might capture a high multiple, but obviously 1800 seems kind of high to me. <laughs> Yeah, 1800 is really high. And if you look at uh, just not even a year ago, they were actually unprofitable, made a loss. Okay. And now these are the latest numbers I could pull out. And they have, uh, they have a little bit of earnings per share. Important here also to the share price, why it popped. It was above the consensus, above estimates. So all that to say to, to people that are not necessarily, you know, in the market, don't know too much about investing in stocks, you know, it's always about managing expectations. So even though the, the company may still not make profits, but the loss was less than experts did expect, you might see the share price really popping uh, to the upside. So tell me about then... If I see these kind of price, and I have to get back to this, you know, the asset classes in general, for a big fund, it is difficult to hop even on trends, even mega trends. But I want to quiz you about your vision. What are the mega trends that will really impact long-term um, asset management for anybody, institutionals, privates? What can you see? Well, I, I think one of the biggest mega trends is is just this development of different asset classes, SPACs. Um, we have the emergence of private equity replacing public's equity increasingly. Um, we have investors going into ETFs rather than mutual funds. Um, I mean, there's a lot of change going on in this whole financial world that we live in. Um, I think that it's hard for me as a traditional mutual fund investor to really think highly of these other classes, their competitors. Um, they, they seem less um, under control than, you know, a professional investor picking stocks. Um, some of it seems a little bit speculative with the SPACs investing in a management team that has no assets, but they're going to go out and buy assets. It seems like you're paying two or three times for that. You're, you're, paying a premium to get the company, you're paying, the company's paying a premium to buy the assets and then they have to fix the assets because they're so good. It seems that it's a lot of work to create an attractive return to me, but um, that's where we are in the market. And um, those trends obviously will play out. And if, if it's a disaster, then we won't have SPACs anymore, but we're still early in that game. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. I don't hear digital assets. I know you're, you're not too you know, excited potentially, but looking at it from the outside, I mean, we just had you know, the, the biggest rally ever in Bitcoin hitting above 50,000, over 1 trillion in, um, um, in market value. Now we had a bit of a dip. Elon Musk losing overnight about 15 billion US dollars, which was an interesting one to read this morning. But what do you make of that? And do you think that digital assets sooner or later will go mainstream and be part of even 
balanced portfolio simply because it is an asset class not to ignore? Um, I think it's not going to be successful in the long run because it doesn't produce cash flow. It's a speculative asset. It, um, it only has value in what someone else will pay for it. So I generally would have to say it's not a good place to be. But having said that, we saw GameStop go to 200 something dollars a share. So, you know, if, if you want to play that game, go for it. But it's not for me. But it's, it's very interesting that you say that because it's not for you. However, we have now new technology. We have social media. We have the ability that masses can be informed about uh, some sort of concerted effort um, and action that somebody instigates. And this is how GameStop really happened. Um, and you, you seem to have the individual in the investors building a mass, going into the market and even fighting big funds or hedge funds. So a hedge fund manager cannot ignore that, can he? No, they, they clearly can't. There's, um, there's the ability to unleash all these individual investors using social media. And when there's a high short interest, they can put pressure on the hedge funds and squeeze them. And if you... If you borrow stock to go short it, you have a liability that, that requires you to put up even more money. So that's a problem. So it, it's a really interesting time to be, uh, be a short investor, to be um, one of these social investors. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> okay, go deeper on it's crazy. Because one thing for sure, I wonder whether it's going to go away or it's going to accelerate because speed, complexity, and the capacity of the technology is only improving. Right, right. Well, I'm just so fundamentally based in terms of earnings and dividends and revenue growth and just traditional ways of measuring value that I think it really reflects just how artificial the markets are right now driven by these low interest rates. So I, I don't think we should be surprised that there's some really um, crazy, to use a word, um, trends that have developed just because it's not, it's not a typical market that we've seen over many, many years. It's so driven by the Fed, by um, social media. Um, these things should, should not be sustainable. They're not creating value. Mm. So they yeah. should end badly. They should end badly. That means, if I follow your thought rightly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that means that, for example, if you say, okay, Bitcoin doesn't create any value, I don't believe in it. Okay, let's leave Bitcoin on the side. But what about the underlying technology, blockchain, and the trend towards decentralized finance in general, putting up basically all the banking services of traditional banking for a fraction of the cost available to everybody that is somehow you know, linked in with their, with their technology. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's critical that we use technology to manage cybersecurity, to manage um, potential fraud. Um, it's, it's so essential that we digitize um, our economy and get costs out. Um, if you look at two of the most successful banks in the U.S., J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, they're further along in uh, automating the whole banking market getting into the cloud, taking out silos, 
um, gaining scale in a business that requires scale. Um, the other banks are obviously doing the best they can to follow that. But it's, it's, um, it's a big change with blockchain just because you can take um, all the data associated with banking and make it secure, make it much more difficult for fraud to occur and to um, feel confident that you can transfer money around the world without, without issue. So blockchain is, is not the same as Bitcoin. I mean, they, they may borrow some of the same data, but they, they're two different things. Absolutely. And a lot of uh, people don't actually know that. So uh, one is the underlying technology, I guess, and then you have protocols running on it and it can be Bitcoin, it can be other digital assets. Important is there to know the immutability that you just talked about of the blockchain, making it uh, basically stopping any kind of potential fraud, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's draw the picture out a little bit and talk about geopolitical issues. And a lot of people have been watching what's been going on during the Trump era uh, between the US and China. Of course, now we have President Biden. But how do, you, how do you evaluate what's been happening over the past four years in terms of trade, trade relations, um, or trade tensions, if not to say war, between your country and China? Well, I think that it's been it's been a very challenging time for the U.S. because China is really good. I mean, I would call them a they're a very talented country, and they they're able to accomplish um, a lot. They haven't made many mistakes. Um, there is always a question when you have a managed economy like that if they did encounter some serious problems that it might take longer for them to recover because in capitalism you have all these these um, different businesses that are trying to fix themselves simultaneously and some are going to hit and some aren't. In a managed economy, it's fewer choices. But China has done an excellent job of managing through these various issues in the economy. Um, the U.S. has done a reasonably good job of manage, managing their economy, but under Trump, um, he really pushed back against China. He pushed back against Europe as well. Um, created a little bit of tension in the trade markets. Um, in some ways, that opened the door for China to be viewed less negatively as a, as a threat when the U.S. becomes a threat too. So that's just interesting development. Um, it, it's really going to be up to the U.S. now to really demonstrate that we're still the, the world leader in capitalism and that um, in that China is more of a threat than a friend. So it has to play out um, really according to our, how well our leaders can lead. So I, I think it's a very interesting time geopolitically. Interesting also to read, I think it was last week, um, a news flash came out that the biggest trading partner of the Europe of Europe, of the European trading bloc is China, not the US anymore. And I wonder whether this is going to be rebalanced now that Biden is, um, is uh, the president. But coming back to China, you know, China has been seen for many years now as the growth machine of our global economy, global growth. They seem seeming to bounce back, bounce back quite well also from the COVID crisis. However, these issues these differences in humanitarian values, does it really play long-term any kind of role if you are dependent, I want to say it that way, dependent on 
a growth engine. I mean, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Yes, I think I think there's going to be a pushback by U.S. Um, leadership to have U.S. companies being dependent on China being a sole source of many products, and um, I think that 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 could change the economy somewhat. Um, but it, you know, they're a low cost country. Um, businesses want to save money, so it's going to take a lot of leadership to balance off that issue. It is, and it's it's uh, well, it's all the, the proof is in the pudding, as the English say. I learned. So I wonder what is going to come about. Biden has been extremely active since he took over from Trump, um, in terms of the actual you know follow through of what he promised. Uh, he seems to be very proactive, also with the relationship with China. But it seems to be also making clear there are certain issues that the U.S. will never agree with you know, in terms yeah. of what's happening uh, internally in China. And I guess, my guess, uh, I'm putting myself out here, China will never accept that. They don't care. You know, they're 1.3 yeah. billion people. The economy is quite good. I don't want to say that they are independent, but they have enough opportunistic trading partners across the globe. Even the ASEAN, ASEAN countries doing very well. Do they really want to be following the U.S. in what they think is right Right, they they are increasingly independent of the U.S., so it's it's definitely an issue. And um, you could argue that that Trump was right to to take on China when he did before it got any worse, but maybe it is worse now. So <laughs> maybe you know, and you know, my husband said. He said, you know, I miss, we, we love Asia. He said, oh, I miss Hong Kong, I miss Hong Kong. We have to go soon because our Hong Kong soon might not be the same anymore the way we used to know it. Right. Yeah, no, it's been China-fied, so. Yeah. Still, still okay. special, but not as special. Yeah, no, no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see. And, and more importantly, as you were saying, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the globe is going to react to whatever China is doing. Because one thing for sure, you know, I, I was sitting with a couple of people not too long ago. Yes, we are locked down, but we are allowed to see people. <laughs> and we were talking about technology and what technology is good. And somebody said, oh, I love American technology, da, da, da. And, you know, Silicon Valley is always what it is. And, uh, and then it was getting specific and somebody said, yeah, but I would never buy that. That is technology from China. And the other person turned around and said, well, I buy it because it is technology from China. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That's a big change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a big change. Things are changing for sure. All right, now let's play. You being my fund manager when it comes to equities, shall we? And you are going to um, draw up a little bit my portfolio. What would you say in terms of sector? Please, you don't have to mention any kind of stocks. But what sort of sectors do you think the next maybe, I don't know, two to three years should be doing relatively well? Where would you say, what would you say are, are the, the trends that you would follow as an investor? Well, I, I think that we want to avoid the most expensive areas because I'm a value investor and that would include tech and social media because they've done so well and they're discounting a really great future already. I think that the um, industrial part of the economy, including energy, I think the, um, the traditional telecom sector, such as AT&T, Verizon, 
um, are not that expensive. So that's not a bad place to be. Um, I think that healthcare is, is reasonable um, just because there's so much change going on in healthcare and, um, and there's a lot of technology that will benefit new products in that area. Um, I would say that utilities are less interesting just because they've been such a big beneficiary of lower interest rates. And um, it'll take a while for them to get their earnings to grow if interest rates go back up because of the regulatory lag. And um, let me see what have I left out. Um, what about pharma? I mean, would you buy Pfizer now? Um, well, I would say that that pharmaceuticals are not a bad place to be. They're not. They're not that speculative. Um, they have a lot of innovation coming. So um, yeah, I'm very comfortable with pharma. Mm. What about financials? Because I wonder about interest rates on one hand. On the other hand, they had quite a good rally as of late. Yeah, they've they've bounced off lows, but they've been out of favor for seven or eight years. And normally it takes more than a little blip to recover from that sort of underperformance. So I think financials are, are probably pretty good right, right here. Yeah. And then what about gold? We didn't talk about commodities, but gold also, if you look at the way it's been trading with the digital assets going up, gold has started to come off a little bit of its, of its $2,000 an ounce high. Right. Is, that, is that a long-term play? Well, there's really two things going on that affect gold. One is the money supply, which um, I think pushed gold up from its lows a couple of years ago. But then there's also actual inflation. And we, we're now starting to think about whether inflation is picking up. And that's really the reason to own gold from here. If you think the economy is going to pick up and we do get substantial inflation, um, that would make gold more more useful as an inflation hedge. Typically, the um, the best inflation hedges are real estate, um, the stock market, and gold. So that those are areas that generally haven't done that well in recent years. So wouldn't be a bad place to hide. Yeah, real estate. Real estate has started to come up, uh, even in London. Uh, believe it or not, in the UK, has started to come up again, and also the sterling bouncing off. But now we're getting too granular. So when this is released, it's going to be almost old. But uh, the last one I want to ask you, and I ask this uh, all of my guests, Edward, what would you say are the three key learnings you would pass on from your experience in your career managing assets? You would pass on to anybody thinking of investing their nickel, their dime, or even more into any kind of assets class? What do they really need to go through internally, you know, emotionally and rationally? Well, I think, I think in many ways, staying calm is, is very important just because from those graphs that you shared with us earlier, you can see that the markets do tend to go down a lot and then go back up. So if you stay calm, stay long-term, um, you're probably going to be okay. The, uh, the second thing, which I think is very important, is to think in terms of just whether the product makes sense to you. And I think if you look back over many years, one of the first indicators about whether Walmart was going to be a good company was the parking lot. And you go past the Walmart and the parking lot's full. Go past the Sears or a Kmart, the parking lot was empty. Sometimes that's all you need to know about investing is common sense. 
The, um, the third thing, which I think is very important, is when a company has a scandal, it usually is a little bit like cockroaches. It's the first of many. And um, we've, we saw that over the years with WorldCom and Enron and, and you know, a number of companies that ended up not making it and, and other companies, which took a long time to turn around. So when, when things start to go wrong at a company, um, you really have to think twice about staying involved because there's other stocks to buy. And most of the time as an investor, when you get caught up in a company where there's some sort of scandal, it takes all of your time. It takes your time away from the rest of your day job. So um, sometimes it's better to start fresh after something like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I wonder, listening to you, what's going to happen with VW after Dieselgate? And BP is still standing after Deepwater Horizon right. for how long? Is the question. Years. The point was it took many years for those stocks to get through it. And presumably now both companies are going to be ultra clean because they were so embarrassed and their board was so embarrassed. So, um, but you had to wait probably five years to buy both stocks. Yeah, so yeah, and I guess, yeah, and I guess transparency these days is just so much more there. You can get so many sources, whether they are fake or not, but you can really get information. So, and as an, as an investor, what do I need to look for in my asset manager? What do I need to uh, hear out for when I'm sitting down with a person that wants to, wants to sell me their fund? Well, I, uh, I think you need to ask them about their resources, their research department, how they fundamentally analyze companies. Um, I think you want to ask them about their ownership because um, I work for a private partnership, so we, we weren't relying on quarterly earnings as much. If an um, investment shop is re relying on quarterly earnings, Are they going to cut costs when there's a bad stock market and not do their research as much um, because they're trying to make their quarter? Um, I think you want to look at fees. I think it's important for, um, in particular, mutual fund owners to be in funds that have reasonable fees because you have to earn that or earn more than that fee to overcome it. Um, and I, I think that you want to know about their philosophy and is it a philosophy that, that you're comfortable with? I love that philosophy that you're comfortable with, which brings us a little bit back to the ESG argument before, if you feel that there is more involved to your return investment than just pecunia, i.e. money, but a lot of satisfaction all around, then that is certainly a value game and uh, a long one. So to sum it a little bit up what we just talked about, you like ESG, you like industrial telecoms, uh, more the, the old economy stocks, Texts have been rallying so much, mm, difficult financials, looking quite good, pharma, okay as well. Right. And, That's a good summer. Yeah. <laughs> um, fantastic conversation. Fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being with us here on Mentory TV, spending you know, your knowledge, your wisdom, uh, sharing it with me, and I can share it with anybody that is curious to, to hear um, about what we were talking about. So thank you so much. Thank you, Patricia. Nice to be with you. And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community, for having joined us again for another great conversation, this time with Edward Bowser, joining us from the States, I think in Florida. Is this where you are? 
I'm in Florida, yes. Yes, and we are really, really jealous out here because I think you've got much better weather. Thank you again and see you soon. Bye. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.